Thank you very much. Uh, please turn with me to John and chapter 17. John chapter 17. While you are turning there, just a quick uh, statement to do with uh, where I was this morning. It was uh, very exciting when um, we had the setting apart of the, uh, the work in Chamba Valley. I, as an individual, missed out on the setting apart of the work in Choma and the setting apart of the work in um, Ibex Hills. So this was very special to me, um, rather than perhaps those of you who've been witnessing all this. But especially because, as I said last week, that uh, this is the third church that has been set apart uh, this particular year. Uh, it's never happened before in the life of uh, Kabwata Baptist Church that three churches, uh, all of them healthy, should, as it were, come off the factory line. So if you are not... Um, full of excitement and dancing and everything else, uh, we obviously are not sensing the same uh, spirit here. God has been most gracious uh, this year. But tied up with that, um, I trust they showed you the, the in, did they show the intense picture, the intense house? Okay, good, thank you very much. Um, I trust you saw that uh, the deacons have purchased uh, a third um, intense house. Now, this is an item for prayer, and I really want you to take it not as something that's being given generally, but for you specifically to pray. As at the time this house was being sought, we were in the kind of problem that we had this year that we had last year. And it's the fact that Whenever we have one married intern, it means we have to reduce the number of interns from six to four, because one home is being occupied by a married intern. So that's what happened last year, that's what happened this year, and that was what was going to happen for next year. We had a married couple that were going to come in from Swaziland, and then three individuals from within Zambia, within the country. Well, we definitely needed to open up, because you can't stop married people from coming for internship. In fact, they tend to be the more mature ones anyway. So uh, the deacons have since now bought a third house, which was going to mean that now we could easily have six bachelors plus a married couple, easily. That's the way it was going to be. Uh, the, the brother from New Zealand has stepped, I mean, from Swaziland, Eswatini is the new name, has stepped down uh, due to a number of different reasons. Um, and so what we now have is three interns, but we are now spoiled with space. 
And that's where we'd like you to pray. That between now, in other words, this coming week, when we advertise the space that we have, to the end of the year, that God will give to us pastoral interns that will occupy all the property. All right, so it would mean a maximum of nine pastoral interns. One of the reasons why that is crucial is to do with uh, missions work. We have found that when we have sent out missionaries who have done internship here, we've had a higher success rate, a very high success rate. Because, first of all, we know them, so it's easier to know where the chaff is and where the wheat is. But also, it is because they get to see how an actual Reformed Baptist church is run, and then they go and seek to do the same. So we have a higher success rate. And that's one reason why it's so important for us that we are considering having interns, and then sending them out to plant churches so that we can see more and more of the kind of success that we have. The three individuals that have taken these churches this year to that success that we have just seen, one was an intern here, Quenda Quenda, two were members of this church and that is uh, Kasango Kayombo and um, uh, Kennedy Kawambale. So they've had the exposure, and consequently, they've been able to do that. And uh, we are now considering four men for Eastern Province, and those four men that we are considering currently for Eastern Province, half of them have had uh, internship here, where well, at least one of them is currently going through a fast track, uh, and then the other two haven't. So again, the more we can have them going through internship here, I want to repeat, the better we have the potential. So please pray. We'll get word out this week up to the end of the year, and let's pray that God will send us the right people. We have accommodation now. Um, as you can see, this house is in Kabwata Estates, so even in terms of outreach, we can reach out near Chilenje, that side. We can reach out in Livala here, and we can reach out in Kawata Estates through our interns. Okay, I've taken about six minutes to celebrate this and also to ask for prayer, and it's because I really wanted us to participate. God is doing something among us. Let's make sure that we are not sleeping in the back seat. Okay, John 17 and verse 14 to verse 16. We're having the Lord's Supper today and we are still looking at the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in looking at verse 14 down to verse 16, what we are really looking at is still but one section of this very, very rich prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ made that was captured by John 
for the edification of the church for the rest of human history. And uh, I'll just read those 14 to verse 16, just those verses. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Well, if you add our previous passage of Scripture, which we're looking at, it's fairly evident that the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in his high priestly prayer is primarily concerned with the security of the believers, those that he was going to leave behind. Look at verse 12 very quickly. Verse 12. Or maybe I can even go a little further. Verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, that which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the sign of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he said, but now I am coming to you. So it was on his mind that he should lose none of those whom the Father had given to him. And, since, since, and therefore, this theme of looking after the disciples remaining behind in a hostile world was on his mind. Again, it only makes sense, brethren, because at the beginning of this entire section, which is John chapter 13, we read these words. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He showed them the full extent of his love, says the New International Version. So obviously part of it would be to secure their safety and their protection because he was going away. And that's what he continues to deal with even in this section. What you notice Standing out in the few verses we're looking at is the way in which I have um, described my sermon. And it is with this title, Our Estrangement from the World. Our Estrangement from the World. That's the very reason why Jesus is praying. It is because if there's anything to be taken for granted, it is this. The world hates Christians. If there's anything to be taken for granted, it is this. The world hates 
you. Now, if you don't think so, if you're having a glorious time with the world, if you've locked hands and are dancing with the world, well, what we read from James when it was our consecutive Bible reading should be a warning to you. James chapter 4 warns that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You can't have it both ways. The world hates Christians. True Christians. The world hates you. That's the reality. Rather, what we should instead be surprised about and be asking questions about is the question, why? Why? Because, strictly speaking, Christians don't get guns and go and blow out people's brains. They don't. Muslims do. But Christians don't do that. Christians instead love their neighbors if they are true Christians. They seek to bless those whom they meet, even those who curse them. They still seek to do them good. They pray for them and so forth. Christians are the vanguard of civilization. They have fought for human freedom from every form of enslavement. Christians build schools. Christians build hospitals. Christians serve in all those. So you ask the question, why then does the world hate Christians when Christians are such a benefit? Well, our text today gives us the answer. And the very first statement there is where our primary answer lies. And it is this, because we are in possession of God's truth. Because we are in possession of God's truth. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's the first reason why. It is primarily because we are stewards of God's, God's word, God's truth in the world. We're the only stewards of God's truth in the world. We are the unique stewards. And therefore, the evil one marks us out immediately. That here are the ones who are propagating the truth, God's saving truth, and consequently, let's go after them. And the evil one, therefore, seeks to destroy us are in one of two ways, either by making us sin against God or by taking us out of this world. Now, the best way to, to understand this is um, in the context of football. The, the only person who normally in a football match suffers injury from the opponent is the one who has the ball. 
if anybody comes from whichever angle and tackles you when the ball is halfway across the field, everybody knows that this, whatever the problem is, started long ago outside this field. Some, maybe you took away his girlfriend or something and he's angry with you. But the normal thing is the moment you have the ball, you have to have four eyes around your head because the opponents immediately come for you. Although, strictly speaking, it's not for you. It's for the ball. And so, if you are one of those who was injured not too long ago, and the moment someone comes with a sliding tackle and you jump into midair, they'll just get the ball and move on. Because it's not you they want, it's the ball. Well, friends, that's precisely what this matter is with us. When we become Christians, God gives us his truth. And that's where trouble begins. For those of us who are Christian leaders, those of us who are Christian preachers, it's worse. Because as the Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Bring the shepherd down and you've caused a mortal wound to the Christian church. Again, it's not primarily that person in and of himself. No, 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 no. It's that truth, the gospel truth, the truth of God's word that makes Satan say he is a marked man. I'm now out for him. She is a marked woman. I am now out for her. That's the first reason. There is warfare between light and darkness, between error and truth, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And basically what you have done is you have taken possession of the assets of the kingdom of light. I have given them your word. And that's it. The evil one immediately turns his arsenal on you, and you are now noticing the bullets that are passing over your head. It's no more business. Now, despite the ferocious enmity of the world, God keeps us safe from the chief antagonist. I have skipped a few words there. We will look at them in my third point. But I want us to notice <clears throat> that God does this in answer to the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ for his people. And that's what makes this prayer such a great comfort for us. <clears throat> because what it means is that our perseverance is not because of anything special about us. Our perseverance is because of God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here it is in verse 15. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, why should Jesus begin to think about taking them out of the world? Well, it's simple. It's because he's living. He's living. And because he's living, obviously that's the thought that is on his mind. Recently, there was uh, the, the Taliban's regaining control of, um, of the, uh, Afghanistan. And uh, there were a few moving pictures, a few moving pictures, videos. One of them, I hope you saw it, was that of an American Air Force plane that was about to take off. And a lot of people, a lot of people, were climbing onto the wings and running along with it. I don't know what they were thinking, when they were going to hang onto the wheels or something. I don't know, but you could sense the desperation in people to escape. What touched me was another story, which was of a mother who realized she wouldn't escape. But she had a baby, and all she did was to abandon that baby next to an American soldier. And that American soldier just realized a baby had been abandoned with him and his colleagues. The mother was nowhere to be seen. Why? Here must have been the thought on this woman. If I cannot escape, at least let my child escape. If I can't go, let my child go. It only makes sense. It's the heart of love that is there. Many Others just clung on to their children as they were making their way, trying to be among those many individuals that were being taken over across the oceans, some into Europe, others into North America, and so on. With respect to our Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, part of the thought was, here are a people that I have given the truth. I have given them your word. I have made your name known to them, and so forth. And now that I have made them primary targets of the evil one and his people, then I go away. It makes sense that I should be asking the Father, may they go with me. Makes sense. It almost feels selfish, having caused the trouble to then leave them in the world and go away. But he says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but instead this is what I'm asking. I'm asking that you keep them from the evil one. The actual Greek rendering there is simply that you keep them from the evil. You keep them from the evil. Now, there's no doubt that it was possibly 
the evil one that um, the religious Christ would have had in mind because the evil is definitely ref with a definite article referring to someone that is already being talked about. Why did the Lord ask that disciples should remain behind? Well, firstly, let's remember, friends, life is really not about us. And I think that's something we need to capture as we are going through life. It's actually not about us. Life is about God. It's, it's about His will and His worth. That's what life is about. So the reason why God still wants us in this world, if He still wants us to be in His world, is that we might be witnesses for His glory. That we might show forth something of the glory of God, of who He is from generation to generation. That's why the church is there and that's why He keeps us there. Remember one of the, I think the city stud, I might be wrong, who used the phrase, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. I am immortal until my work on earth is done. In other words, as long as God has work for me, I'm not dying. But as soon as that work of God in my life comes to an end, that's it. It takes me to glory. Because it's not about me. This life is not about me. It's about God. And so he leaves the church in the world so that the church might continue shedding forth his light from generation to generation for his own glory. That's the reason why he keeps us in this hostile world. The Lord is quite deliberate about this. The best example I can think about is Second um, Timothy. Let's just quickly go there. It's, it's a good illustration. Second Timothy and chapter 4. It's almost a contradiction there, but once you understand what I've talked about, there is no contradiction. Second Timothy chapter 4. The Bible says there, <clears throat> beginning with verse uh, 16, chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Listen to this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now listen to this. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now let's think about that for a moment. The Lord rescued me from the lion's mouth. So in our minds, 
The lion obviously was not a real lion, but it was maybe some authoritative figure that could have taken away his life and he survived it. But even if it was a real lion, the lion wasn't going to take his money. It kills. Okay. And he's saying, the Lord has rescued me, and the Lord will rescue me basically again and again. And yet the same Paul has just been saying in verse, 18, verse 6, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now, basically, I'm waiting for the crown of righteousness. In other words, I'm just waiting to die now. So let's process this for a moment. Here's Paul saying that whatever these people are trying to do to me, they won't do to me. Why? Because God will rescue me. And yet at the same time, he's saying, I'm about to be killed. I'm about to die. Is this a contradiction? No, it isn't. It can only be a contradiction if rescuing is merely physical. Physical. Then it is a contradiction. For us, death is a promotion to glory. It's a promotion to glory. It's you've done your work, you're now being recalled home. You've been in the battlefield, and God is saying, fine, well done, my son, my daughter, come home. So that's not the catastrophe. The catastrophe instead is if you destroy your witness, you destroy your testimony, you become a laughing stock, and that laughing stock is, as it were, making dirty the brilliant splendor of God's glory. That's when it is a calamity. When perhaps you, because of suffering, you actually abandon God, abandon your faith in God, you you, you call God all kinds of names, that Christianity is false and so on, it's useless and everything else. Now, that's a disaster. That's failure. And when you look at what Paul was talking about, Paul was saying, in that sense, God has rescued me. Let's go back to this text now. Listen to the way he puts it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now listen to this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, there it is, and then bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In other words, I will die. That's the entry into his heavenly kingdom. There's no going in without dying. But I will go in on a victorious note. So he will look after me. And that makes sense now when you go to verse 6, when he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Notice, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and I'm going to my reward now to get my crown of righteousness. In other words, 
the Lord has kept me, he will keep me up to the moment I die. And I'll go to glory victoriously. And that's what we need to capture, brethren. That when Jesus is saying here that keep them from the evil or the evil one, it's not simply keep them physically. I mean, for how long will God keep you physically? We'll all die. The, the greatest saints that have ever lived have died. And many of them have died young. Many of those who brought the gospel to Africa died soon after arriving in Africa and Asia. Many of them. Very few lasted to old age. But rather it's this. Keep them from the evil. From that which can stain their clothing. That can stain their witness. Keep them from the moral evil so that to their dying day they bear witness to my glory in this fallen world, in the midst of a hostile world, that they continue doing so to their dying day. Keep them not from death, but from the evil, the evil one. I wish we can capture that. When the Lord Jesus was contemplating his coming death, one of his concerns was Judas, and the other was Peter. And the main reason why I was concerned about these two was this same turning, turning from living for God to living for self and sin and the world. Of the two, there was one he did not pray for, and it was Judas. He didn't pray for him because he already knew he was a son of perdition. He didn't pray for him. Judas betrayed the Lord and hanged himself. Disaster. He didn't pray for him. For Peter, he prayed. In fact, on one occasion, he called Peter aside and said, Peter, Peter, the devil has asked, the evil one has asked to sift you, that's plural, meaning everybody together, as wheat, but I have prayed for you, which is singular, you, Peter, that your faith might not fail. I've prayed for you. And then he says this. When you come back, strengthen the brethren. Strengthen the brethren. So the time came, and indeed, Peter messed up. But kind, I think we all know. The way in which he even started calling curses upon himself. I don't know what you're talking about and so on. I don't know that man and everything else until the cock crowed. And Peter repented in dust and ashes and became something of that fiery evangelist to his dying day so that your faith might not fail, so that you might be kept from evil so that your witness 
might be sparkling to the end. That's what this is about. It's the Lord using us in that sense. So brethren, the world will hate us. The world will try us. The world will push us. But if we truly belong to God, truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will either stand or if we fail, we will rise again. And in our rising again, we will be even more resolved to put the devil to shame. Jesus prays for us. That's how he keeps us. But there's one more thing, and it is this, that the Holy Spirit keeps us. It's really the Holy Spirit's work. And in that sense, it is a, a Trinitarian work. It, it was the Holy Spirit in Peter that convicted him so much when the cock crawled. It is the Holy Spirit in us that brings us back from a backslidden state. It's the Holy Spirit who finally causes us to be like a ball that is full of air and you push it into a bathtub and it keeps popping up. You push it down, it keeps popping up. It's the Holy Spirit in us who causes that to happen in answer to the prayer of our Lord Jesus I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then finally, the bottom line is not just that we have possession of this eternal inheritance, this truth of God, that the evil one marks us out that way. It is that God has totally transformed us, totally transformed us, so that we are no longer of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. We are in every sense, individuals that have been moved out of the kingdom of darkness, and we're now in the kingdom of light. There's been, at the point of our conversion, there is a real transformation that happens. A real transformation. We are translated from one kingdom to the other. Jesus says it twice. The first time is the place where I skipped. Let's go back there. John 17 and uh, verse 14. I've given them your word, and the word has headed them, and here it is. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And the thing about our Lord is when he repeats himself, it is because there's something very, very important happening there. One of the things that has happened of late is uh, during our last um, 
let's call it while we were ruled under a political party, we were now allowed to have dual citizenship. And uh, quite a number of Zambians are, are trying, who are abroad, are trying to, to have citizenship there and citizenship here, so they can keep dual citizenship. And it's fairly easy for us Christians to sometimes think like that, to, to try and have dual citizenship, to, to, to have some inheritance in, within the context of the fallen world and then some inheritance within the context of the renewed world. The point that is being made here is this. First of all, they are not of the world. He has taken them in that sense out of the world. We are still in the world, so in one sense, he says, don't take them out of the world. But in another sense, they are not of the world. They are in the world, but not of it. We have one citizenship, brethren, and it is citizenship in the heavenly kingdom. It took place the moment of our salvation. This fallen world, this, this world under the captivity of the evil one, it lost us completely. We died to this world. We were buried to this world. And we rose to newness of life in another world completely. And it is the world where God's rule is in ultimate control of all things. And that's where we dwell. Where Jesus dwells as well. Just as I am not of the world. Again, I wish we can capture that. That's what has happened to us. I wish we can capture that so that we stop listening to the commands of a fallen world and instead we realize we are now in a different world altogether where our ultimate captain is the Lord through his word and through his spirit. And therefore, we cannot have dual citizenship. The only weakness with dual citizenship, which theoretically is talked about, is this. If you are a citizen of both England and Zambia, what happens when England and Zambia go to war? What happens? On which side will you be? Now, that's a very theoretical question because if Zambia goes to war with England, we better all say our prayers because in the next 24 hours, there won't be a Zambia to talk about. But here's the point. With respect to this kingdom thing we're talking about, it's not a hypothetical question. It's not, what if the two go to war? They are in war! That's what's happening. They've locked horns. Jesus said it clearly, that if they've done this to me, what about you? You're a servant in the kingdom. They'll do this to you as well, if they've done it to the master. There is a real war that is taking place. 
It's not theoretical. And therefore, we need to put up our flags on the side of Jesus Christ. We are not of this world. He's translated us through his blood, through his death, through his spirit. We've gone from this fallen world into the next. And we should be soldiers of the kingdom in every sense. As we come to the Lord's Supper, may that be our attitude. Our attitude. To recognize there's no truce, there's no white flag that's going to be waved between us and this fallen world. Uh-uh. It ain't gonna happen. This world wants us dead physically and wants us dead spiritually. The Lord himself is the one who's keeping us spiritually and he'll keep us physically until he says your work is done. Come home. May our attitude be to trust him with our lives and our everything and to cock our guns, each one of us, and go in there with guns blessing. Before, I'm not to show which elder is leading us in Lord's Supper, but before he comes, I lost the first year of my Christian life. Totally lost it. Complete disaster lived in compromise, ashamed of my Lord, until 30th March, 1980, the day I was baptized with Mr. Singogothi. And I've never forgotten the day before my baptism on Saturday, dealing with this issue, that once I go into that water, no more compromise. And I've never, I don't know where I got this phrase from. I still need to find it. It was the words that when I go into those waters, when I come out, I'm going to fly all my flags high. Pastor Joseph Fuga baptized me a teenager of 17 years old. And as I came out of those waters, that's exactly what I kept saying as the towel was being handed to me. Jesus, from now on, I'm going to fly all my flats high. Forget the embarrassment and shame. Forget the compromise. I want to show on which side I am. All that fear, you will look after me. May God help all of us to do just that, to say, you will look after me, you will keep me safe. My business is to fly all my flags high. Amen.